0: So my standard of success is basically a successful child, a successful person is somebody that believes in themselves and feels that they can cope with all the challenges that come along in life, mm-hmm. who also has significant relationships you know, with their parents, with their siblings, with their friends. I don't put a monetary indicator in there because I see a lot of very wealthy people who are very unhappy. And so th- that's a lot of people say, oh, how can you be unhappy? You know, you have a, mm-hmm. some fancy car. I'm not into cars. But, you know, honestly, who wants to have all these material possessions when you have nobody to share them with? Mm-hmm. Nobody that you care about to be with, to enjoy them.
1: notes do you see my pen i got notes right here yeah i'm looking to make it a little lighter
2: <laughs> are we mutually aligned oh right now oh my
1: goodness uh, there's, there's always two, two versions <laughs> i mean you're moving a little slow but i'm working I, I, really a- hard
2: <laughs> we'll definitely talk about that later
1: <laughs> love for work Real quick, I just wanted to invite all of our listeners to this really cool thing that I've done. Now, this is the 12th year. So long. So long. Loverwork is part of a nonprofit called Plywood People, and Plywood does an annual event called Plywood Presents, right?
2: Yeah, it's great.
1: How Every many years you have you been to? How many all years 12, have you been All been,
2: 12.
1: <laughs> I will hundred percent. It's definitely a highlight of your year, isn't it? Oh,
2: you know, I'm just thankful that I'm not taking out the trash
1: every year. Like, like the first year.
2: Like the many first few years. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm presents, very thankful that I get to sit and enjoy it
1: now. Totally. Ply is August 12th in Atlanta in person. And Ooh. we want to invite you to be a part of it, to join us. You Look, can come by yourself. Can, you can, we can bring your
2: faces?
1: Someone that you love with you. Or you, can, you could have a whole table. A table of six people.
2: Find me or find Jeff. If you listen to this podcast and you are coming to Plywood Presents, I need to see your face because I never get to see you. I just talk into a microphone wondering if anybody listens.
1: Oh my. So find us. It's a super inspirational day. You'll get practical advice in whatever projects you're leading or purposeful work that you're doing. We have incredible speakers. You can find all the details out at plywoodpresents.com. Sign up today. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your cousins, tell your sisters, and be there or be square. August 12th, Flower presents. Welcome to the Love Work podcast. This is Jeff. And I'm Andre. Man, this series is off to an incredible start. We have a good, successful interview today. <laughs> successful. Very successful.
2: <laughs> Let's just start with a few fun things that we learned about our teacher today. So one of her daughters
1: is the CEO at YouTube. Yeah. What's really funny is that she's the CEO of YouTube and they didn't have TV growing up in their house.
2: Yeah. The other daughter is a professor of pediatrics at University of California, San Francisco.
1: So there's that. Number two.
2: She's freaking smart. (laughs) The other daughter is co-founder and CEO of 23andMe. I mean, she raised some very successful successful kids. Yeah. And also wrote a book called How to Raise Successful People. That was smart. Yeah, real smart. Yeah. So today we have Esther Wojetsky, and a lot of people call her
1: Waj. Now, when you say a lot of people, like she is known in Silicon Valley, Palo Alto, whatever all those places are, where all the tech hubs are. Just as Watch. Watch, because she has taught So many of the people that are now extremely successful in that area. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
2: This book that she wrote, Jeff and I have read it, and the byline underneath is Simple Lessons to Help Your Child Become Self Driven, Respectful, and
1: Resilient. So as we get into it, there's three things I want you to listen for. Yeah. First, how to trick your kids. Tricks. Number two, swimming at the age of 12 months. And number three, Elon Musk. There we
2: go. That was a good story. And so today we have the author of the book, How to Raise Successful People, Esther Wojcicki. My family story starts
0: actually in when I was a small child in New York City. Uh, My parents are immigrants from Russia. My father was from the Ukraine. My mother's from Siberia. Krasnoyarsk, actually. And I was the first one born here in the United States. And everybody was very excited about having the first American. Mm. I did have a bit of a challenge, had to learn to speak English after I went to kindergarten because the primary languages were flipped between Russian and Yiddish. And English didn't really make its debut until a little bit later. I was from an Orthodox Jewish family. So the man was the one that really had all the power and control. I don't know how much you know about Orthodox Judaism. What it is, is the man is the only one that can say the prayer for the dead. And that's really important. And so that's why women are not valued as much is because they can't participate as much in the Jewish rituals. But anyway, everyone was really excited that I was born here in the United States and I was an American citizen. And along came my brother when I was about five years old. And the first thing I remember about my brother is literally within days of being born, my father told me verbatim that I was no longer important and that my brother was much more important because he was a boy. As a five-year-old, of course, you know, I didn't even really know what that meant. I just sort of laughed it off. But it turns out that throughout my childhood, it sort of played itself out. Because I ended up being the child that was really asked to do a lot of things to help out, you know, to help cook, help clean, help do all the other stuff. And my brother was really, he was being in training to sort of read the Torah and not to do, you know, a lot of housework and things like that. What is kind of crazy about that is that while they were really trying to empower my brother, they accidentally empowered me Hmm. because I learned. A lot. I learned how to do everything. You know, I I could cook, I could clean, I could find stuff, I could ride bikes, I could go wherever people needed to go, and it just was really an empowering thing for a kid Mm. to be part of it. Then, unfortunately, when I was ten years old, there was a tragedy in my family that really had a huge impact on me. Um, My mother. We had at that point there was three children. My youngest brother, David, and um, he was in the kitchen playing on the kitchen floor with bottle. Of aspirin, it turns out. And he accidentally opened it. And of course, since that time, Bayer aspirin has those caps on aspirin so that there's no way a child can do it. But he ate the aspirin, a lot of it. And my mother did, I had no idea what to do. Like, what should I do now, you know? And so she called the doctor. And the doctors clearly didn't listen because what he said to her. Was put him to bed and see how he is in a few hours, which is kind of just a standard answer that doctors give over the phone, Mm. you know, without even thinking. And of course, as I said, he didn't listen or he wouldn't have said that. And my mother, being this immigrant who thought everything in America was the best it could be, she was afraid to challenge him. She's like, oh my God, you know, he's a doctor. He knows what he's talking about. I'm just an immigrant. I don't know anything. Mm. And uh, so she followed his instructions. Of course, three hours later, he was violently ill. And so at that point, they took him to a hospital, a community hospital where they pumped his stomach, but wouldn't keep him because it wasn't a hospital where you kept patients. And so my parents went around from hospital to hospital, try to get him accepted. And because we didn't have proof of payment, they wouldn't take him. Mm. So it's a very sad story. I remember it was like late at night, 11 o'clock, he was finally taken into some Catholic hospital. But at that point, he died. Mm. So, what it did to me, you know, when you're a child, 10 years old, you don't think about what it does to you. But what it did to me subconsciously was it made me say to myself, you can't trust anybody, especially people in authority. You need to make sure you know that yourself. You need to think yourself. You cannot just rely on other people to think for you. That really impacted my life because I ended up spending a lot of time in the library, wanting to read. I tried to read everything that was nonfiction, since I came from this poor family. We didn't have a lot of money. My father was an artist. That was one of the things open to me: the library. You know, and Hmm. it was a great place for me to go. And I spent a lot of time there, and I ended up being like a really good student. And that was in contrast to how I had been before, which I was just kind of lax and basical. And I graduated from a school in Los Angeles, a large school that had seven to 12 grade. And again, I was didn't even know that this existed, but I ended up being the valedictorian of the class. And it was a very large class. And as again, coming from this immigrant family, I didn't even know what valedictorian was, but I was very excited because it helped me get into the University of California, which is where I went to school. My parents... Did not want me to go to college because again, you know, the orthodox religion, girls are supposed to be mothers and caretakers and you're not supposed to go to college. Like, why do you need to go to college? You're not going to work anyway. You're just going to stay home and have kids. So I disobeyed and uh, they financially disowned me. And so I had to do it myself. It was a bit of a challenge. And I, but I, I was determined, determined to get an education, determined to have a degree. So people have asked me, like, you know, why are you always so passionate about education? And why do you keep doing this? And it's because I personally have seen the power of education. If I never would have gotten a degree, I would never be where I am today. And I never would have gotten out of poverty. I would have just continued the cycle. And my mother ended up working as a clerk in a a big store. And I didn't want to do that. And I, didn't want, I just didn't want to have to worry about every meal that was coming you know, down the pike. How was I going to eat breakfast, lunch? We were always worried about enough food. So that really changed my life. And so that's the beginning story of how I started.
1: I think that framework, I'm sure, was like a setup for now what you gave your life to and also how you raised your family, right? Like making a strategic decision to live differently. Is that a fair way to say it?
0: It was absolutely. A strategic decision to live differently. And, you know, again, the method of discipline coming from my father was um, spare the rod, spoil the child. That came from Russia with him. And I think back in those days in Russia, you were always hit. Um, not only hit, you were beaten up. And so that also happened to me. And I wanted to make sure that that never happened to my children. I was consciously aware of, I wanted to give them what I call trust and respect, which is part of my, the acronym in my book. And starting from when they were born, it was really important to me to have trust and respect for my children. So I did a lot of things early on to give my children autonomy, independence. I wanted them to be independent thinkers. As a teacher with a teacher mindset, my idea was always to see what I could do as early as I possibly could. You know, what could a one-year-old learn? What could a two-year-old learn? It was kind of an experiment for me more than anything. I, I thought of my kids as like really fun, you know, a little guinea pigs. sorry to say, mm-hmm. but it was, it was really fun, you know. Could they learn to swim early? How old did they have to be to learn to ride a two-wheel bike? There were a lot of things that I challenged myself. Can I teach it? Can I break it down in such a way that they can actually learn it? And and it turns out I could do that, and I did do that. You know, they learned to ride bikes really early, two wheel bikes. They were three. Mm-hmm. Uh, they learned to swim. So Susan learned at two, Janet learned at one, and learned also at about in between one and a half. But swim, I'm talking about swimming from one end of the pool to the other. Have you ever seen a 12-month-old kid swim? I bet you haven't. <laughs> yeah. Turns out they can. not Yeah, that's awesome. So I had a pool and I was like, there's no way. I don't want them to fall in and not protect themselves. So this is was my answer yeah. to how they should protect themselves. And in the process of doing that, I empowered them. Mm-hmm. They felt very confident. They were always little kids that would always go up to the visitors we have and say, Hi, my name is Susan. Or, Hi, my name is Janet. And they weren't the kinds of kids that were hiding behind your skirt or something. Mm. They felt pretty good about themselves. And I wanted all kids to feel like that. So that's why I, that's why I became an educator. Yeah. And it was just a perfect fit for me because I'm, it turns out I'm good at teaching. I'm wacky enough so that all my lessons were entertaining. The kids always thought it was really fun and funny. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it worked out. But you know, I should, should just tell you, I started out as a journalist, mm-hmm. and uh, I tried really hard. I have a master's degree in journalism from the Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley. And the problem was in the late '60s, early '70s, when I wanted to do this, um, women were not welcome in the press clubs. It was an all-male profession. Mm-hmm. And so, women, you were allowed to write for one section of the paper, and it was called the women's section. It was the news section, the opinion section, the sports section, and the women's section.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: And the women's section had articles like how to vacuum well. I'm not kidding. Oh, or my God. How to take care of your
2: husband. Oh, shoot me <laughs> now.
0: And there was another set that Dear Abby was always in the paper and it wasn't there. If it wasn't Dear Abby, it was Ann Landers, which turned out to be her identical twin sister. And so you were supposed to read about all these things about how to take care of your family. And they wanted me to write for that section. And I didn't want to do it. I wanted to write real news, you know? Yeah. So I was like, okay. well, if I can't really write it, I'll be a teacher. I'll teach it.
2: Yeah. We've read your book, How to Raise Successful People, which I is so many of your stories of how you did this with your own kids, how you did this in the classroom. And so for you, just in that, even just that phrase, how to raise successful people, what does success mean to you as a parent? And then how do you even know if, You're winning. Like, are we supposed to be winning? Are we supposed to be? Is the goal a successful child? Like, what is your standard of success when you came up with that title?
0: So my standard of success is basically a successful child, a successful person is somebody that believes in themselves and feels that they can cope with all the challenges that come along in life, Mm -hmm. who also has significant relationships you know, with their parents, with their siblings, with their friends. I don't put a monetary indicator in there because I see a lot of very wealthy people who are very unhappy. And so that's mm-hmm. a lot of people say, oh, how can you be unhappy? You know, you have a mm-hmm. some fancy car. I'm not into cars. But, you know, honestly, who wants to have all these material possessions when you have nobody to share them with? Mm-hmm. Nobody that you care about to be with, to enjoy them. Mm-hmm. They're hesitant. I see it in many cases to, you know, to have a lot of friends. They're always wondering whether those friends are friends with them because of them or friends of them because of their money. I think you want to have enough in the way of financial success that you can live in a house, buy enough clothing, buy enough food
1: like even separating yourself from people. I mean, that seems like the, Like at the success level, what you're explaining is like relationships. Like if you're creating a life where, you know, you're separating yourself from others, that's not a good life. Is that what you're kind of getting to?
0: That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, we're, some people are lucky they have more money. Other people's are, people are not. I think there needs to be more compassion in the world. More kindness, more understanding. We're we're all in the world together. We need to help each other. And you know, the super wealthy like Elon Musk and you know Jeff Bezos and uh, competing for who's wealthier today. I think that wealth needs to be spread mm. with lots of other people. And Jeff Bezos's ex-wife Mackenzie Scott, I believe yeah, her name. Yeah, she's
2: done a good job with that money. Amazing.
0: She's got $53 billion. She just got married recently. I want to say congratulations. Sounds like she picked a great person. (laughs) He's a former teacher. Yay. Chemistry teacher. Yay. And they're going to hopefully use that $53 billion to make the lives of so many people better. Yeah. Why else accumulate it? Who wants to be the richest guy in the cemetery? You know? (laughs)
1: And with that, as you kind of paint this picture for your kids of what success looks like, because I think as parents, as teachers, what you're saying, a lot of this is like, how do you retrain people's thinking ourselves and for others around what success is? And you've kind of built this kind of framework that you teach kids, right? This trick concept. Right. You're tricking your kids yes. into a better way to live. Can you unpack the trick concept for us a little bit?
0: Right. So trick, by the way, I came up with a lot of it by talking to my students. By the way. I want to give them credit. So TRIC stands for trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. And so what my students always said to me is, do you trust us? My question for them was, really, what don't other people trust you? And they're like, no. I was like, well, so because my program grew from 20 kids. I mean, today, it's over 700 kids involved in this program. It's the largest media program in the US. And they were like, we're here because you trust us and respect us. I was like, everybody needs to do that. I mean, all these teachers need to do that. And it doesn't seem to be prevalent in the schools. So it stands for trust, respect, independence. I gave them a lot of independence. I collaborated with them. I did not dictate. I didn't come up with the rules myself. I collaborated with them on all the rules. You know, what should happen if you're tardy? How should you use your phone in class? Or shouldn't you use your phone in class? What should you do with laptops? You know, all those rules. Everything about how the class runs, everything about all the dates and what thing when things are due, you know, how many newspapers are we going to publish this year? How many pages do you think need to be in everything it was all collaborative decision. And then kindness. You always treat them with kindness. And my motto was that, you know, a kid might they'll forget what you said in class, or they'll forget what you did on a particular day. But honestly. They never forget when you were kind,
1: hmm.
0: never. And so that's been something that's been really important in my thinking all along.
2: So did you collaborate with your own children at home about their punishments or the rules of the house? Is is that something that you brought home as well and not just use in the education space? Well, So I did
0: this first at home and then I brought it from home. The education space. That's right, because I stayed home while they were little. Okay, you know I couldn't get a job as a journalist.
2: So again, the kids as the guinea pigs tried it out on them. Tried it out on the guinea pigs,
0: and it worked. So, for example, when Susan was five, Janet was three and a half, and Anne was just born. We lived in Switzerland, Mm -hmm. Geneva.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: It's like right in the center of Europe. Yeah, and so you can drive to all these places. So the question is like so guys, what should we do today? Where do you want to go? And try asking a three-year-old, I want to go to the zoo. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But you know, it was crazy. You can always empower those kids Mm -hmm. by giving them an opportunity to have a choice and to make a decision. And that's basically what I did. I always did that. Mm. I always gave them the opportunity to have input we went shopping at this incredible grocery store called Migro, M I G R O. It's R O S. It's in in Switzerland. I love Migro, and um, they got to pick out the food and help me decide what they were going to eat. What what are we going to eat for breakfast? What are we going to eat for lunch? What are we going to do? So they were the total guinea pigs, and we went to more child centered activities in those years we lived in Geneva than ever before
2: Hmm.
0: and probably ever since. So I tried it and it worked, you know, and it worked in terms of Susan was very responsible. She could always help. She could babysit at five years old. She was babysitting. Can you believe that is true?
1: That's funny. (laughs) So one of the things that in reading your book, your daughters wrote like the foreword to the book, which I thought was really beautiful. They mentioned this phrase in it that I, I really stuck with me. They said, "In our house, we had a lot of arguments, but we didn't have fights." Can you unpack that a little bit?
0: So, what it is is everybody brought their ideas to the table. We spent a lot of time at dinner talking about what their ideas were, and people have different ideas. You know, the same two people experiencing the same event can come away with very different view of what happened. And so they would always talk about ideas, what they read, what they heard. It was no television. They didn't have TV really, but we did have the radio or we had what went on in school or whatever. And so there were different viewpoints and nobody ever thought about it. In other words, there was never anger. Hmm. You never got into a situation where whatever it was you were talking about, you were so angry, you got up from the table and ran off in a huff. That never happened. I think it's because we always welcomed all ideas and my husband the scientist he was always talking about proof prove what you say and hmm. what you want to do is have good enough proof points so that you can you know convince the other people at the table and it's interesting we always had visitors every night the kids would bring home friends and one of the kids just recently, I just spoke with her. She's the same age as my daughter, Susan. So she's in her 40s. She says, the main thing I remember about your house is all the dinnertime discussions. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's where that phrase comes from.
2: Well, you talk a little bit about your husband a little bit here. And how was that? Like, Can you talk about the importance of You know, raising kids together? Did you have similar viewpoints? You know, we heard your side of your story kind of growing up. Did your husband just naturally share those same viewpoints with you? And how did you partner together in raising kids?
0: Some women would say this was a really challenging environment because my husband spent the majority of his week and waking hours working. You know, Stanford professors have a lot of pressure. It's either publish or perish. And so he was a young professor of physics and the department was full of people with Nobel Prizes. So the mm. pressure was on. So he basically relied a lot on me to do a, most of the parenting.
2: Okay.
0: Um, we agreed most on most things. I'll tell you what we didn't agree on. He was much stricter than I was if they said they were going to do something he wanted them to do it and like now and i was more willing to listen to their logic their argument about why they couldn't do whatever it was <laughs> if that logic made sense and they were able to mount a good argument i said okay you don't have to do it so i think that we really never fought that much except on trips if we went on a trip you know when you're with people for 24/7 you know, two weeks in a row, then mm-hmm. you really have to get along. Otherwise, it's going to be not very good. We compromised, both of us, mm-hmm. and worked together. But also, I think a lot of women in that era, they would have been really angry because their husband didn't participate very much. And mm-hmm. today's world, they would be really mad. Yeah. But I just realized that this was his goal in life. It was so important for him to be... You know, a well known high energy particle physicist. And so my goal and my role was really to help support that desire, which meant that I had to do pretty much most of the parenting. Mm. That's why when you read in the book that he wasn't there for very much because he wasn't. I mean, he never took them to the doctor, never went to the school with them. He didn't do any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. On the weekend, when he had time, you know, he coached their soccer team. He spent a lot of time in the evening talking to them at dinner know, he did what he could.
2: Yeah.
0: All marriage is a compromise. Mm-hmm. Every single one. People that think, you know, you somehow arrived at this golden state, rainbows everywhere or whatever. It's not true. You know, mm-hmm. you always are compromising. You're always helping because everybody has needs and you have to work together.
1: So now fast forward, you had these three girls that culturally are extremely successful and the backbone of this philosophy the way you raised them is for them to have independence, which it's interesting to hear your original story going, this is what was being built into me, even though that wasn't the purpose of my parents weren't trying to build that into me, but they built it. So yeah, what does independence now look like? Like, what's your relationship with your girls now? Like, how has that changed over time?
0: I'm very close to all three of them. I'm, I'm at my daughter Anne's house right now. And we see each other once a week, if not more often. And I spend a lot of time with my grandchildren. I have 10. It's so interesting for me to watch because I think you parent the way you were parented. It's instinctive. And I think that's one of the problems, you know, in poverty, a lot of people do things that they promise they'll never do as parents and then they end up doing it. Mm. So I see them empowering their kids the same way I did for them. Mm. And it's just, it is pretty remarkable. So one of my grandchildren, you know, in this COVID pandemic, the question is, what are you going to do? You know, how are you going to make school better and whatever she had graduated and she was going to go to college, but the college closed, you know, no, no college this year. Sorry. (laughs) She's like, okay, I guess, let's see, what can I do besides cry or whatever? She's on a trip in the outback right now. It's called Outward Bound. Mm -hmm. two months, she's going to be out there with a backpack in the middle of God knows where. I mean, (laughs) she picked this on her own. I'm telling you, I would never do this. And my daughter, of course, gave her the opportunity to do it, even though I think it's pretty challenging because they don't take their cell phones with them on this trip. You should know. Mm. So, you know, two months later, they're coming back.
2: (laughs) We'll find out in two months. I really like how you talk about the responsibility for your kids emotions and whether parents should or shouldn't feel. And I definitely think this is a great kind of thing to talk about, especially with this pandemic. And you're talking about, you know, your granddaughter with the, you know, are we, am I just going to cry about this the whole time or, you know, all these things that are happening, but what is your philosophy about that and parenting and your kids emotions?
0: So my philosophy is very similar to the philosophy that I grew up with and that, you know, happened when my husband was working all the time. You need to make lemonade out of lemons. So we've had a lot of lemons this year. You know, COVID Mm -hmm. has been terrible. But you need to, instead of crying over what you don't have, you need to look forward and see what opportunities there are right now. There are opportunities. You know, so another one of my grandchildren, actually all of them, by the way, since we're all stuck at home, they all ended up doing what I did as a child, which is basically taking care of the house. You know, the five-year-old was in charge of vacuuming. You know, the other kids were in charge of making dinner. One of my grandsons was in charge of making bread every two days. Turns out he's an incredible French bread maker now. (laughs) It's it's shocking. It's like, can you make another bread now, Marco? Now. (laughs) I mean, the idea was to see what you can do within the constraints that you have instead of just crying about what you don't have. Also, I wanted to make it clear that, you know, kids missing a year of school, it's not good. But honestly, it's not tragic. Hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: Let me tell you what happens in any school situation. You memorize for a test. All tests are memorization for the most part. All research shows that after two weeks, just two weeks, you only remember 32% of what you memorized. Mm-hmm. And after a year, it's 5%. So all that memorization, you ask why people are doing it, because it doesn't make a lot of sense. The most important thing to memorize, of course, the times tables. And then you say, and you tell, did you memorize your times table? You know, said the kid, and they're like, I've got my cell phone. I don't need to do that. Right. I still think certain things they need to memorize. Yeah. And I think memorization does help. But all those kids, a year of missing school, they're all going to be okay. But it's their attitude, their mindset that's going to make the difference.
2: Are we responsible for their emotions, for their mindset? Is that ours or is that something we teach? Is that... We are responsible. Let me
0: tell you how we're responsible. We, the parents, are the models. Kids do what they see you do. They don't do what you say. Hmm. You tell them to do something totally different than you're doing. They just don't listen. They copy you, which makes it really hard for parents because when you're really stressed out, then your kids become stressed out. And so it's a difficult situation. And it's best to take a deep breath. I mean, all that yoga and meditation, that actually works. Mm-hmm. And it's best to take a deep breath and see whether or not you can't figure out a way out of this. People will say, well, maybe you can do it because you know now you have enough money. But I can tell you growing up, you know, I did not. It was four people living in a one-bedroom apartment. That's what I grew up in, in East Los Angeles. And we had a living room, a kitchen, one bathroom, and a bedroom. That was for four people my mother, my father, my brother, and myself.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. So it's, you know, you just have to make do with what you have and see whether you can't figure out a way to improve it. And that's Mm -hmm. where education comes. I mean, education is really, it's other people's wisdom put in a book for you to learn about easily without having to experience it yourself.
1: If someone took this a lot of I mean you have some amazing philosophies and and have practiced it out not only on your own family but
2: all the students. hundreds and
1: hundreds of of kids that have been through your training and your programs. I'm curious when you come across, you know, kids are in your house and you're like, man, their parents aren't teaching them in this way. Or, you know, like this contrast between like two families that are operating in completely different ways. What do you feel like your responsibility is in that moment? Because like you don't want to offend the other parents. You don't want to shame them. Yeah, you don't want to shame them. How do you process those moments? Because I'm sure all the kids have not been trained in the way that you have trained your kids.
0: Well, what I have done in the past is I offer them an opportunity to do something with me. Do you guys want to go somewhere on the weekend together and we can see, you know... We can talk about it. I don't try to dictate because it doesn't work, but I'm open to discussion and open to ideas. And I remember, you know, talking to parents about some of the things that I was doing. My kids actually turned out to be pretty remarkable, even as kids, you know, Janet at the age of three, when we moved to Geneva, she moved herself by herself into the five-year-old class. And, you know... (laughs) most people didn't even know that she was not five except she was a little shorter that was about it she managed to pull that off for two months
2: until <laughs> one day somebody so unreal <laughs> oh that's so funny so what do you do when your kids utterly fail when it doesn't work when they make poor choices what do you do when your kids fail. And they are not those successful kids you're trying to raise.
0: (laughs) So how old are these kids you're talking about that failed?
2: Well, I'm sure there are hundreds of parents listening that their teenagers have failed in profound ways. Let's start with teenagers.
0: Those are the years where you can see the impact of your earlier training. (laughs) Sorry to say. The number one thing they do is they stop communicating. They don't tell you what they're really thinking. They don't tell you what they're really doing. And the main reason they don't do that is because they think you're going to criticize them and you're going to tell them how bad they are at something. Mm. And that is probably the worst thing that can happen. Uh, You want your child to feel like you will accept them no matter what. Mm. And the communication has to be open. So that's why I say collaboration, you need to keep that open and you need to stop being so critical. So a lot of kids might fail in school. I mean, the worst failure that can happen as far as I'm concerned is they get hooked on drugs Mm -hmm. because they get hooked on drugs. The reason they take drugs is because of psychological pain. And if they get hooked on drugs, then it's a real problem because then they are no longer in control. Mm -hmm. Keep the communication open. You know, I'm good friends with Elon Musk's mom. Uh, Her name's Mae Musk. She's like a supermodel. And we've had a lot of discussions about how Elon failed in school all the time. He wouldn't do any of the things that they were telling him to do. Hmm. He talks about it himself. The only thing he wanted to do was anything to do with technology and computers, And so she let him do that. She didn't let him do it because she wanted to. She was so busy trying to earn a living that she had to ignore him. And so he ended up doing what he wanted to do anyway. So I would say the best thing those parents can do is to open the channels of communication. I would say, have them read the book, my book, because a lot of kids in my classes said, please give this book to my parents. (laughs) And so... It might be a way to get the communication open again. If they fail and they don't get good grades in high school or whatever, you know, honestly, it doesn't matter because, you know, you can go to a community college and make up those grades. A lot of the smartest people around did not go to college. You know, they just get these certificates. Google has certificates on Coursera. There's another one called Udacity that people get certificates on. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of opportunity so that you don't have to think you're a failure. And that's what I would advise them to do. Give their child an opportunity to direct, say what they want to do and support it, whatever it is that they want to do, but provided it's not illegal and provided it doesn't hurt anybody.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Esther. So we end every interview with this question because this is our question we've been asking for the last three years. But do you think it is possible to change the world, stay in love and raise a healthy family? Great question. I think there is some
0: tension between staying in love and trying to change the world. And I think it's because when you're trying to change the world and you're really passionate about what you're doing, you may not spend enough time and energy on your relationship, and mm-hmm. then the relationship may deteriorate. Mm-hmm. But if you are aware, if it's on the conscious level, and maybe both of you have the same passion and the same goal and to change the world, then it could probably work. But all marriages require care and feeding, let's put it that way. You always need to take care of that person mm. that you live with and that you're in love with and that you married. And when you stop doing that, it's really very difficult mm. for the relationship. And if you stop doing that for the changing the world passion you have, then that doesn't happen either. Yeah. So it's a challenge, just like you said, and the kids get caught in the middle.
2: And now it's time for the breakdown. She's got some good stories. She's great. We could have gone all day listening to her stories.
1: I feel like this is the person that you need to have in your ears when you don't want to take the time (laughs) to really invest in your kids and like, like they're frustrating you and you're like, all right. Right. like what am I really trying like they're frustrated I'm frustrated okay let's dig in let's hear their argument when, you, when it's just yeah. like you want them to do the thing that you told them to do and it's like well they don't want to do it and that happens literally all the time we have raised two very independent kids yeah is that fair to say yes there's moments where I want you to be independent and there's times I just want you to do what I say yes
2: I love that she was like well I actually listen To their logic about why they're not going to do what I asked them to do. And I'm like, wow. Well, and
1: actually, and she's like, and sometimes their argument wins. And I tell them they don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's actually a really very adult of her. (laughs) Let's be honest.
2: (laughs) She is older and wiser. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's part
1: of it. Yeah. Tricks, though. She's taught them tricks. Trust. Respect. independence, Independence. Collaboration. And kindness.
2: It kind of stretched me about collaborating with rules and letting your kids be a part of the decision making, even for rules.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually.
2: I mean, just think of the buy-in that you get, right? When the kids also make it and they decide, like, I mean, I can just hear one of ours helping make the decision of how his sister might also get a punishment. That's a bit extreme. (laughs)
1: To let the other kid no, decide it's not the, the other. I'm saying uh, for
2: both, but yeah. it includes like he gets to be a part of that decision, also. You know, I yeah. just think it's interesting.
1: It is kind of interesting.
2: But I also really just loved how she talked about modeling. Yeah, she goes into a lot more in her book about the responsibility that we feel for our kids' emotions, and that really it's not our responsibility. For their emotions. Our responsibility is modeling the correct emotions. Mm. So our responsibility is ourselves, right? Like how I respond in anger and frustration and this and that and joy and have, you know, how I how I model and how I show how I handle my emotions will be is replicated. The, is, and it's also the only thing I'm responsible for. Right. Their emotions are theirs. And their responsibility to also learn how to control them and take care of them. And and so many times I think we feel like it's our responsibility to make sure our kids are happy. Right? Yeah. But I don't think that's
1: true. I don't think that's true. So I remember, I want to go backwards in time a little bit, to when I presented this book to you. Yeah. And you were like, oh, that, of course, that's the book you're going to read, How to Raise Successful Kids. (laughs) I was a little bit of a cynic. It was like, oh, yeah. But I feel like
2: Esther's a cynic, too, so she would understand.
1: Well, so I presented this book to you. Yes. And because it was presented to a friend of mine, and I got like three chapters, and I'm like, this is good. Yeah. And you were like, I don't know. Now, on the back end of all this, (laughs) how do you feel?
2: I I feel better. I think that whole like successful person is all of a sudden like our model, like that we want our kids to be. And I think in my mind, it was like, you know, like her daughters, the CEO of YouTube. Now I've raised a successful child, right? Well, like what if my kid wants to be a dancer and she's going to dance in some whatever group for the rest of it? Like I don't want some certain model of success to be my goal.
1: So let's be clear.
2: But Esther doesn't do that.
1: She doesn't. You put a perception on her and on the word success.
2: I judged.
1: You judge. Oh. I, I, I wasn't going to point that out. I judged by
2: the I judged by the the title. You
1: literally judge the book by its cover. By the title. Yeah. And, the word
2: successful.
1: <laughs> and ultimately, when you ask that question, Evander, like, how do you define success? I would say you were sitting there listening and you're like, oh, that's, that's really good. I hope my kids are that well, way, right?
2: Yeah, no. And I think she, as you read, even in the subtitle, she kind of hints to it, is self-driven, respectful, and resilient. Mm. If that is a definition of success, then it doesn't matter what they're doing. Let's Let's go. go. I'm in. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But if there's like some other model of success that somebody is trying to say to me, I think that's where I get a little like, you know,
1: defensive. Isn't this the power of books though? I mean, like what's interesting is... They can change your mind. They can. (laughs) Yes, they can change. Well, no, it's like what's really amazing, especially (laughs) for us as a couple trying to figure out how to... (laughs) How to not ruin our kids is we could take a book oh, and we can read something they're definitely together. going to be
2: ruined. We but. can
1: read something together and we can go, wow, this other person changed the way that we see the world and how we raise our kids. So I think this has been awesome today.
2: Yeah. And I mean, if we can raise, like she said, successful kids are kids that believe in themselves and have positive, meaningful relationships. Win. Win. Right there.
1: Well, that's a great way to close up this episode. Thanks for listening with us. Go check out her book. Oh, and she has a special app that she just launched. Right?
2: Yes, it's called Tract App, and she said you can look it up at woj. dot app a p p And she is giving any of our listeners, this is an app for kids, 8 to 15 years old. It's a learning educational empowerment app. And she is giving our listeners three months free Free. with the coupon code WOJ.
1: Well, that's a successful episode. If you're interested,
2: check it. And And that's that's another another episode
1: episode of Love or or
2: Work. This episode was recorded by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions.